Luminous because is this chitta, but it is defiled by adventitious defilements. Adventitious means they're visitors, they come and go. Pali word agantuka. Agantuka, that which comes in. Guest defilements. <laughs> Luminous because is this jitta is defiled by guest defilements. The uninstructed worldling does not understand this as it really is. Therefore I say that for the uninstructed worldling there is no development of jitta. Luminous bhikkhus, that's the first sutta, and Gutra 1.51. followed, it's a very short saying. Many of these sayings in Yangutra, particularly the Book of the Ones, are very short. It follows it, luminous bhikkhus is this jitta and is freed from adventitious guest defilements. Instructed noble disciple understands this as it really is. Therefore I say that for the instructed noble disciple there is development of the citta or citta. So it's contrasting. The uninstructed person doesn't recognise the luminosity of the mind or hasn't attained it or found it or developed it or it's not present in their conscious experience. And um, so in this case it's because it's covered over by these adventitious, these, these guest defilements. Kilesa, grudges, resentments, uh, fascinations, uh, you know. And um, the mind is, is dazzled by all this stuff and baffled by it and often thrown around or absorbed into these quarrelling, uh, contentious phenomena. They pull, because they pull attention. Yeah. So this is why it's very busy, it gets very busy. And the energy of the mind then leaks out. The word is asawa, asawa, which is something like leakage, translated as outflow or inflow or corruptions, taints. Uh, refers to the uh, kind of uh, disease that trees would get when the, the sap would come oozing out of the tree. Or something, some disease had got into the tree and the bark was splitting open and the sap was oozing out. So the tree is leaking, its vitality is leaking. Um, this is asawa. You know, and so what happens is these defilements are like leeches, they suck the energy out of the mind and the mind leaks asawa. It leaks through three main channels, the leakage of becoming, the leakage of sensuality, the leakage of ignorance. Leakage of sensuality means it is uh, kind of absorbed, fascinating, take issue with, uh, measures itself in terms of sense data, sense contact. It's searching for it's, it's attracted to, it's mesmerised by, it fights with, it, all these things preoccupy it. Taste, sound, such, touch, sight, and everything compounded out of that. Therefore the energy of the mind is sucked out into this uh, ongoing scenario. 
becoming a certain kind of subtle form of stasis, status or stasis. I am this, I am here, I am one of these, I'm never going to be one of those. And so becoming something, an existing identity, and that takes a lot of juice too. <laughs> it takes a lot of juice to be an identity. You've got to keep holding it all together. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you go through a cycle, you take 24 hours, you realize how many of those hours can you actually be your social identity? <laughs> When you're taking a shower or you're having a nap, you know, then who, who, who's that? When you wake up in the morning, who's that? Before you're the, the manager or the uh, uh, conservative or the Muslim or the Buddhist or whatever, who are you? you know, <laughs> before you get into those, those roles, and it's becoming, and yet it does, once you get into it, it just grabs the mind and pulls it in that particular direction to, to sustain that particular identity and role. Becoming, non-becoming, the wish to not have to, the wish to find some absent place you could just hang out in. <laughs> not be bothered. So the mind oscillates between these. And then this, what's happening is the energy of the mind is being is colouring, so these experiences become very vivid. Mm. Experience of one's fantasies, one's imaginings, one's cravings, one's uh, become so vivid because, in some ways, they have no existence at all. They're just gestures in emptiness, but they attract and pull energy into them. Where's the energy coming from? Your chitta, the chitta is bleeding itself white, feeding these creatures or these guest phenomena which have no substantial existence at all. And then the Buddha talks about the trained mind or the one who has developed it. They are abiding in the, in the luminosity of the mind, in the fundamental radiance. Uh, and they're not interested in phenomena, uh, so the mind doesn't leak out, um, and therefore they they understand it as it is. They understand, they turn the tables. They recognise the base state is not is not the world of phenomena. Is not the basis. That's an that's an addition. The baseline is this fundamental open luminosity. And so everything can be constructed from that, but it needn't be. You, know, you can direct energy into what you choose, you can form your world, but you can also let it dissolve. In other words, you are the, 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 fun, the chitta is in charge rather than the farmer's in charge of the chitta. Some of the sayings of some of these forest ajans to be frank about it, this is one particular lineage, so they don't all talk like this. Um, often they don't really talk about the nature of mind apart from it's just, you know, well, you know, when you know it when you know it. 
Uh, meanwhile, they talk about the path, dispelling defilements, and so on. But occasionally, some of them do come in with some statement, I guess recognizing the the illusory nature of words, and uh, also it's, it's uh, not wanting to kind of proclaim themselves, because it's a, it's a fundamental training for Buddhist monks is to to not proclaim, you know, any attainments. It's as if you're kind of a superstar and trying to attract people, because you want people to turn to the Dhamma. But um, Ajahn Mun, Ajahn Mun was um, mid 19th century or late 19th century to, to about 1948. He lived about 70 years old, and he was a forest monk. And at a time when forest monks were not popular, they were considered to be kind of wild men, even sorcerers, you know, who dealt with demons uh, and lived in the jungles in Thailand. So they were even crazy people because they they were a ragged bunch um, outside the conventional monastic system, which was all highly sort of smoothed and trained and domesticated. And these were the wild bunch who broke out and he was one of them and he he sort of felt well if you want to really you should be we should be able to realize what the buddha was talking about by that time and that time in in history in thailand they decided nobody could get in line anymore you just had to wait till maitreya buddha came around so the best thing to do is just make some merit and hang out for until maitreya turns up <laughs> and he said no 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 you've got to be able to do this somehow the Buddha did lay down a path, so he he said, "Look, forget all the studies, forget the you know, domesticated sangha. We're just going to get off into the jungles." So he went off into the forest and did a lot of practice, more or less on his, on his own. Really, uh, he did have an elder bhikkhu he occasionally referred to, but mostly it was just working it on his own um, without you know a lot of education. And um, he was a very rugged, austere and very very determined and he was the kind of progenitor of a whole lineage of teachers bhikkhus fundamentally because some nuns also um, and they were mostly in the northeast almost all of them were in this very rugged uh, rather remote and, and, and uh, malaria ridden area of thailand so it was tough stuff uh, and they lived down in the forests and jungles. And occasionally you might meet Ajahn Man because he was always on the move. He never wanted to be settled down and get kind of domesticated. Um, but one of his disciples is Ajahn Mahabua, who, who kind of came across Ajahn Man in Ajahn Man's later years. He was one of his later disciples, but had a profound commitment to him, to Ajahn Man. And I think at his, in his time, Ajahn Man his last seven years or so of his life did finally settle down. Uh, and so he didn't settle down into his late 60s. <laughs> and then he okay, oh, you know, very simple uh, kuti, and you can come and stay, and I can just pass on what I've learned if you want. And Najin Mahabur stayed with him. And then he had a, um, his own awakening experiences, and uh, then and he set up his own monastery and also gave a lot of teachings. And he passed away about maybe 10 years ago, the age of 98. So 
and essentially they're saying what Ajahn Mun's uh, recognition was you know, there is something outside of the five aggregates although the word something is going to cause you confusion because it's not really a thing but there's some awareness outside or beyond the five khanda that is beyond form, perception, feeling um, sankharas and consciousness and and he says, am I going crazy or what? You know, I just sense something, I can witness. And he checked in with this, um, his, his um, elder bhikkhu, who was uh, like a, you know ecclesiastical scholar monk. And the scholar monk said, well, you know, I think if you look in the suttas, you do find there's something you can interpret that way. So he just gave him a little bit of backing to that, to confirm it. And so this Ajahn Mun's statement, the jitta, he didn't write very little at all. He wrote a long poem, which he carried around. One poem, he gave one or two talks and he's got recorded or, or written down in his later years. Because in his early years, you couldn't write it down because you could never find it. <laughs> and he wasn't going to write it down himself. <laughs> so this is one of his... The mind, the chitta, is something more radiant than anything else can be. Because counterfeits, passing defilements, come and obscure it, it loses its radiance like the sun when obscured by clouds. Don't go thinking the sun goes after the clouds. Instead, the clouds come drifting along and obscure the sun. So meditators, when they know in this manner, should do away with these counterfeits by analysing them shrewdly. When they develop the mind to the stage of the primal mind, this will mean all counterfeits are destroyed, or rather counterfeit things won't be able to reach into the primal mind because the bridge making the connection will have been destroyed. Even though the mind may then still have to come into contact with the preoccupations of the world, its contact will be like that of a bead of water rolling over a lotus leaf. So you can see this, when you compare that with the statement in the, in the Sutta, you see the certain images that are um, very, very similar. The luminosity, the sense of guest or host, guest defilements, clouds that pass across the sky. Uh, he's referring to a primal mind, something before becoming, before contact, that, that contact happens to and it rises up into engagement with phenomena and he's saying well even then once you've sensed this and you've, you've kind of shifted your your foundation your baseline to this more primal state then even when you have to contact sight and sound and doing things and making things and figuring things out you know, there's no the bridge or the connection the, the grasping the craving the identification there's no leakage. You don't find your energy runs out and drains into those things. This is very using the term here, bridge. Now, this is an English translation of, of a Thai term, so you know it seems very clear in English. But I, as I think, most language is simple language. Primal mind. I think this is jit dern in Thai, which means the kind of the basic mind and this is an interesting reference um, 
because this is not the mind that's about um, you know jitta when it is sankara when it, it's, it's sankara means it's uh, it's activated it's activated it's kind of um, stirred um, pulled um, shivered uh, rippling uh, sagging uh, it's not activated it's, it's prior to that it's before that now Ajahn Mahabur sounding a similar theme being intrinsically bright and clear intrinsically that's, in, that's its fundamental nature to be bright and clear this jitta is always ready to make contact with everything of every nature it's rather like an innocent innocent child oh look you know Although all conditioned phenomena without exception are governed by the universal laws of anicca, impermanence, uncertainty, um, relativity, dukkha, incompletion, unsatisfactoriness, uh, stress, anatta, not able to form a coherent entity. The chitta, true nature is not subject to these things, these laws. The jitta is conditioned by anicca dukkha because things that are subject to these laws come spinning into it, get involved with the chitta. So this is the adventitious, the guests, coming in, stirring up the space. So the space starts to get involved with it all, mingled up with it all. And so causes the jitta to spin along with them. However, though it spins in unison with the conditioned phenomena, the jitta never disintegrates or falls apart. So, you know, maybe we, we, we know some of that. We've been extremely disturbed, angry, upset, grief-stricken, you know, really in a state, and, and it spins and then eventually passes, you know, well, what was all that about? You know, wow, just been through something. You know, it passes through, the hurricane passes through, the storm moves through, the, the I can't stand this another minute passes through. <laughs> Here you are. Oh, I did stand it. I, I, you know. uh, somehow, you know, when you're in it, it's like this is going on forever, I can't survive, this is too much. And then when it's passing, oh, what's all that about? You know? <laughs> We seem so involved. That's the way it seems. That's the nature of sankharas, because sankharas breed a sense of self. Whenever, whenever the sense of self comes in, it's always through involvement with moods and feelings and strategies and psychologies. So, yes, I, I am. In, I can't get out of this stuff. That's it. That's true, but there's a place where you're not I. <laughs> you can return to a chitta that's not I, anatta. The true power of the chitta's own nature is that it knows and does not die. This deathlessness is a quality that lies beyond disintegration. You can read this passage yourself. It's quite lengthy. Uh, it wasn't the only time he, he talked like this. Um, 
Our real problem, our one fundamental problem, which is the jitta's fundamental problem, is we lack the power needed to be our own true self. Instead, we always have taken counterfeit things to be the essence of who we really are. So the jitter's behaviour is never in harmony with its true nature. As a result, jitter is forever full of worries and fears. Although fear and worry are not intrinsic to the jitter, they still manage to produce apprehension there. But when the jitter has been cleansed, so it's absolutely pure and free of all involvement, we will see a jitter devoid of all fear. Then neither fear nor courage appear, only the jitter's true nature existing naturally alone on its own, independent of time and space. Once it's become so well cleansed it is always bright and clear, even though the jitter is not converged in samadhi, the focal point of its awareness is so delicate and refined as to be indescribable. This subtle awareness manifests as a radiance that extends forth in all directions around us. We are unconscious of sight, sounds, odours, tastes and tactile sensations. The jitter is just experiencing its own firm foundation. Neither images nor visions appear there. It is an awareness that stands out exclusively on its own. When it does enter meditative calm, so when it does enter samadhi, ceasing all activity, all movement, it simply rests for a while. All thought and imagination come to a complete halt. Then the jitter's essential knowing nature is all that remains, except for this very refined awareness, an awareness that seems to blanket the entire cosmos, absolutely nothing else appears. Distance is not a factor. The jitter is beyond the conditions of time and space. All that appears is a very refined awareness suffusing everything. So I'll just move through that. Uh, he says words can't define it. He's trying, but he says words can't define it. It doesn't have a point or centre. It's impossible to specifically locate its position. There's only that essential knowing with absolutely nothing infiltrating it. Although it still exists amid the same kundas with which it used to intermix, it no longer shares any common characteristics with them. It is a world apart. So this is speaking from his own experience. He was a very forthright, powerful teacher, vigour and energy and these kind of statements are quite controversial particularly when you start using terms like true self then you know Buddhists get a little bit shaky around that here we are going back to Hinduism <laughs> you know the, the Maha Atma Atma merging with the great Brahma or the great super self you think well this just you know, who knows? <laughs> it's just words. Uh, true nature, true essence. It's just he's trying to use words to describe something, and he felt it was his um, almost a duty, because he said often people just imagine that 
you know, enlightenment's not possible anymore and Nibbana, you can't reach it. So I feel it's my duty to say, yeah, you can reach it and this is what it's about. And, and, and take whatever people may think of me, that's their issue, but I'm just going to tell the truth as far as he could see it. And that's his position. So I think this is, um, you know, where am I at, you know? So like many of these teachings, you just place them there and think, okay, luminous jitta, there's all this stuff that seems to mesmerize me and occupy me and be my life and my story and what I'm not and what I could be. Maybe that's just a show. Maybe that's just all pantomime, just all passing stuff, you know. And rather than go out and try and make this and make that and do this, and you just try to get in touch with the knowingness of jitta so this energy is not constantly feeding you know, feeding formations, feeding, you know, being running out into perceptions and sensuality and, you know, just return to somewhere home, peaceful. Mm. And how do you do that? So Dajan Mahabur, it's a rigorous monastery. Mm very strict sense of renunciation, simplicity, um, a lot of emphasis on putting forth effort, being having a pretty sharp awareness and mindfulness around your requisites, around behaviour, you know, training the mind to not keep wandering off. So certainly this is not a relax you know, it's not a casual uh, realization. And, you know, he was renowned for uh, spending a whole range retreat doing non-stop sit from dusk until dawn, so just without moving, sit there for whatever it is, 10 hours at a stretch, doing that every day for the three months of the range retreat. So that's pretty, you know, formidable resolve, which we may think, oh, I can't do that, you know. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> okay. Do you need to follow that thought? Do you need to follow that thought? Do you need to compare yourself? Do you need to follow that thought? Could you just let that thought pass? Feel the sense of dismay or uncertainty? And, you know, maybe you don't have to. Maybe it's just that someone like this had to cut a path that saying, this is the path, you know, I've cut it, you can come down. Yeah. Okay. Like uh like Ajahn Shah would say, you know, you don't have to be a Buddha because we we had one and we're you know, he's created the path. Now we just he's done all the work, most of the work. We just have to be smart enough and loyal enough to follow and you know, it's a it's not a smooth path, but it's definitely a path you can follow. The path of purification. Mm. And it's really about you know, with, withdrawing this viveka, disengagement from the pull. You know, so it certainly is, as Lumpur Ajahn Mahabur was saying, you know, the khandas are still there, perception is there, you can still perceive things, feeling, as feeling is there, um, necessary mental formations, planning, figuring, deciding, that can be there, states of consciousness, yeah, that can be there. But there isn't that 
you know, absorption into them, attraction into them, um, making an issue out of them. So making an issue out of them, taking a stand on them, being spun around by them. This is the power of this process of disengagement, viveka, which um, is first of all being able to see things in perspective, that's that. And using this teaching to encourage us as to, that's just phenomena. What is the knowing? Numenon, phenomenon. What is the knowing of the phenomenon? Okay, there's the phenomenon, there's the knowingness of it. And how is your energetic balance? So you're not, the phenomenon not saturated with your own energy, but your energy is more returning to awareness. So we then awareness can know phenomena very, very thoroughly, handle it very, very thoroughly. And this is part of the seeming contradiction of detachment, disengagement. It means you can know phenomena much more thoroughly than when you're attached to them, because you, you work, you look at the feeling, the qualities, the sensations, the energies, um, rather than just be blindly sucked into something. So you can say, oh, this is where it gets passionate. This is where it gets interested. This is where it pulls me. It presents something glowing. It presents something that promises stability. It presents something that glows and feels comfortable. Therefore, it's, it pulls me because the jitta seeks that glow. It doesn't realize it already has it. It's, it's, it's not looking in the right place. So it's, its luminosity is transferred to, you know, fame, power, wealth, objects, status, positions, so on. It doesn't know that it's already stable because it's, it's tipped over into phenomena. So it's lost its sense of balance. And balance, pull back and stabilize in that knowing. Images, which are also a very powerful form of language. So I've said the jitta is about knowingness, awareness. It's about energy. It's about, um, it actually has no boundaries, but it tends to get absorbed into boundaries. It's essentially boundaryless. Yeah? And that's both its gift and its, its uncertainty, because it, where am I, what am I, you know? So we, we adopt boundaries like a body, a nation, an identity. Just, you know, we tend to adopt boundaries that are purely, you know, constructed notions. It's boundaryless. It's energetic. Uh, um, it's easily affected. It's affected, and it generates. It speaks language of images. Quite warm, bright, uh, sometimes visual images, sometimes sound images, impressions like that, um, mythic images. And so, like sun radiance. This, this image, sun radiance, you can see occurs many times in the suttas. Sun radiance is always seen as a 
one of the descriptions of um, the awakened mind. The Buddha was called the kinsman of the sun. Adicho, the sun, kinsman of the sun, was one of the epithets of the Buddha. Um, these images of radiance. The, uh, it says, you know, the, the warrior shines in his armor, um, but the wise person shines in wisdom. You know, wisdom is shining like the sun or the moon. The fundamental radiance. You know, so well, look at that. Where's that for you? And the process of um, what's called jhana is a way in which we begin to deepen into the mind's nature. And um, jhana is always this, uh, you know, the different ways of the term has moved along in, in the years of Buddhist history. Um, so in very early Buddhism, it's a pretty common word used to mean to meditate, means the jhana. Jhana is meditation. So the Buddha says, here are roots of trees, here are lonely places. Jayati bhikkhuwe. Jayati is the verb. Jhana. Go and jhana. <laughs> it means really get into it. Really get into where that place. Get into it. Soak it up. Absorb yourself in that situation, in the quietness and the stillness. Get into it. Let it get into you. And then when that's fully established, the mind is said to have entered to the state of the first level of it, in which the, um, the um, hindrances, um, like ill will, has abated, has passed away. Sense desire has passed away. Dullness has passed away. Restlessness has passed away. Speculative wandering and doubt and lack of confidence has passed away. Therefore, all those energies that absorbed in the hindrances have now been liberated and they consolidate. And the mind has a fundamental presence, an energetic presence. It's no longer leaking out into these hindrance forms. So then you are absorbed. You are absorbed in the mind's nature in using this reference of Ajahn Mahabur, Ajahn Man. I don't think the Buddha said the mind's own nature, but what are you absorbing into? Is it the body, the breathing? Well, yes and no. It's those are vehicles. But realize also Jitta, it only experiences the energies of breathing. Jitta doesn't breathe, it experiences the energies of breathing. So when it absorbs into breathing, the energies of the breathing and the jitta's energies bond together and the jitta is fed and nourished by the energy that transfers from the body base into the jitta base. It's like you place your attention onto something that's got energy in it, it helps to discard some of the encrusted dullness and then the jitta picks up and there's a transference of energy from the body base to the jitta base and the sign of this is called piti it's a kind of refreshment and it's both somatic and psychological at this point body and mind are not separate 
So there's a certain sense of one feels brightened, refreshed, you know, like you've just had a shower or something. Um, because you know, the, the weight of the hindrances on the, on the somatic domain you know, has been cast off, so the refreshment. And there's an uplifted uh, vigour in the body, vitality in the body. One feels a certain shining quality. And naturally the mind is, is lifted up, it's piti. Uh, and so with this is, is uh, oh, what's this, you know? Because it's not through some stimulation, it's just through, through shedding. <laughs> it's such an important um, uh, experience, you know, one of the, one of the enlightenment factors, the bojanga is piti because it transforms your, your worldview hey I get happy not through having more but by having less that's that's transformative <laughs> I get happy through dropping things rather than having more things that's a world changer yeah. and piti the energy is still quite quite you know, vigorous and uh, flooding or moving around and then the next uh, Training is just to cool it, so it's more steady, quiet, ease, sukha, piti sukha, one is refreshed and at ease. Um, so we begin to sense a quality that's not about sensation, so it's not physical, it's not based upon physicality, it's not abstract, it's not a thought, it's not an idea. It's not not exactly an emotion, but it has emotional connotations. If you're there's a bright mood in the mind, it's energetic. It's in the realm of energy. And this isn't because we pumped it up, it's because we stripped down. And uh, this is so uh, samadhi and jhana. Now if we freshen up some of the use of this word, because... If we look, we just read those two suttas in the Anguttara about the luminosity of the mind. What follows on from that? 53, if just for the time of a finger snap, a bhikkhu pursues a mind of loving kindness, he is called a bhikkhu who is not devoid of jhana. So, there's three suttas where he says that in essence. So, if you manage to get the quality of loving kindness for that long and pursue it, so then you you know you're not you're not devoid of jhana. You need to develop it, but you know you you've got the basic possibilities are there. So it's not as remote as one might imagine. But what what is the what is the key? And I would suggest that it's the point when. A quality love, loving kindness is really felt in your body. You feel the. It's not just an idea. I should be more kind. I should. You may start like that, but you really linger in the the energy of that experience. When the mind is, if it's sincerely felt, there's an energy there. How is that affecting your body? Just linger at that place where the mind and the body are meeting, on an energetic level. Stay there, and that will tend to amplify just by the nature of awareness. 
the jitter will go into that and it will start to expand it slowly. I think it really uh, quite quite important to to get a sense of how that occurs because by and large we try and trying is it's, it's sincere but it's not just not quite the right thing because the trying is always done by a, a person trying to get to that state and that particular energy is a narrow driving So the more you try, the more you constrict. <laughs> so the chitta's energy can't actually bloom, because we're like you know, it's like you're trying to grasp something that's open. So why can't I grasp that openness? I want to get around that openness. How do I get it? Well, you can't, can you? But if you just open, you're there, right? <laughs> How do I do opening? Well, it's kind of about relaxing, but not relaxing in a slumped way, but relaxing some of the fever and the passion and the anxiety and the craving. Rest lightly. Rest attention lightly. And do it again. And listen a lot. Touch it lightly. Listen again. Do it a lot. Touch the right point. Touch it lightly. Listen deeply. Do it a lot. And you definitely got to do something, but it's a very persistent, light listening quality. And uh, sometimes I, in using that metaphors again, like the sun and so forth, I use the language of touch rather than language of seeing. I mean, you know, Chitta doesn't see, it hasn't got any eyes in it. <laughs> you might as well use the language of touch as the language of vision to describe how awareness works. The beauty of touch is that when you touch something, it touches you, right? It's much more, it's actually much more sensitive than visual consciousness, touch consciousness. You know, if, you, you can, if you touch something at your fingertip, I mean, you immediately get something. You don't have to push hard. You immediately get, you know, you can touch something, you know, like a, something looks like a metal vase. So you touch it and probably you'll immediately know that's plastic. How did you know that? It feels like plastic. It's not metal, it's just gilt, plastic. How did you know that? Because if your fingers recognize a particular coolness or slipperiness of glass, or, and it distinguishes it from plastic, or metal distinguishes it from plastic. Touch is an extremely sensitive sense organ. And because it's so direct, because you can't step back and touch, you have to go up to it. It means the jitter goes right onto that experience and opens to it. You can't touch you're closed you have to open yeah and then we open because we've we feel safe we feel there's something beautiful here that could be touched we feel we have the, the capacity and the permission 
I work, I, I can, you know, I'm not some decrepit, defiled, disgusting being. <laughs> I have the right to, to touch something, uh, be with it, and listen to it. I don't have to rush and get it right. All those psychologies that so, you know, um, bind our self-view. We're putting them aside. Touch the look. Just touch your own breathing. You don't have to make it right. Do it again. Touch your own quality of loving kindness as it arises in you. You don't have to be that fantastically radiant and blissful. Touch it and listen to it and it begins to blossom. And there's a putting aside of other modalities. We learn to be quieter, gentler, more receptive um, and patient. Because pushing and clawing and demanding and fighting and trying to make things work is just not going to do it. 